Hey everyone, welcome to Shrink's Talk Shop, where psychotherapy experts share their thoughts with you. And you don't have to be a therapist to listen. There's no reason that we should be expecting people who have opioid addiction to wean off of their meds. Because the brain is just another flesh and blood organ. It's just another organ. And it can get dysregulated like any organ can. And the persistent illusion is that somehow with the mind we can change these things. So what I tell my patients is you, you can no more will your brain to produce more opioids and then you can will your pancreas to produce more insulin. It's just another organ. That's Dr. Mark Willenbring, and you're listening to the first in a series of podcasts from On Good Authority. I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of them with you. We're speaking today with three psychiatrists on the subject of treating opiate addictions, and each has a different understanding and approach. The world of opioid addiction treatment is roughly divided into two camps. The first camp, based on the format of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that sobriety is the goal, and that through group meetings, the support of other recovering addicts, and adherence to the 12 steps, an addict can learn to control cravings and stay substance-free. The second camp emerged when the medical establishment began to recognize that drug or alcohol-dependent people have a disease and that addiction is not a choice. The condemnation and harsh moralism accompanying use and relapse has begun to fade now, and new pharmacology has developed to ease the process of detox and to control cravings. We'll hear first from Dr. Mark Willenbring, an internationally recognized addiction psychiatrist who has been pioneering new ways to treat drug and alcohol use disorders for over 30 years, and we'll hear about how his program, Altier, works with addicts. Dr. Willenbring, what kind of treatments work with opioid addictions and how? Now, the thing is that this process of impaired control over use, which is really the central problem, is malleable to an extent, but the longer you expose the brain to uh, to the high levels of the drug, as long as you continue to use, after a certain period of time, and as it gets more severe, that process becomes irreversible. So once it gets past mild disorder, then the the it's a very low likelihood that those mechanisms of controlling the intake of the drug will ever be restored, no matter how long someone is abstinent. So in that case, in moderate to severe substance use disorder, even if someone is abstinent for 20 years, if they try to use that drug, they will eventually, usually sooner rather than later, lose control. If someone used maybe two or three months, started to notice that uh, they were losing control or they were liking it too much, uh, or, and then they stopped. So the process would not get that severe. However, uh, in most cases, especially with heroin use, if somebody uses daily or near daily for a year or more, 
it's essentially irreversible. Now, again, what makes opioids different is that now when you take away the external opioids, you have an internal brain opioid deficiency. It's really important. It's a deficiency of opioids produced by the brain. And what that means is because that's our pleasure system, it means you can never experience ordinary pleasure. Every day is a gray day. You have no motivation. You have no energy. You constantly feel like you have a low-grade case of the flu. And the only thing you can think about all the time, every day, is getting opioids. Your brain is screaming for opioids. And it doesn't get better with time in most people because that set point change is, like I said, at least long-lasting and in many cases, lifelong. At any rate, this, this syndrome of, of internal opioid deficiency and endorphin deficiency is what, is what eventually drives people back to using it. Yes, when they're in an active addiction cycle, it's acute withdrawal, but long after the acute withdrawal is gone, this syndrome of, of lack of pleasure persists. And that's what drives people back even years after they stop. The reason that methadone was tried to begin with was because abstinence-based treatment doesn't work. Now, this it may be controversial within some groups. It may feel controversial in the community at large. It certainly is controversial uh, or it goes against the grain of people who are strong believers in the 12-step method. However, there's not one single high-quality study published worldwide that has ever shown effectiveness for treatment of opioid addiction with an abstinence-based approach. Not a single one. Well, if you're taking methadone, does it mean you're probably going to be taking it the rest of your life? There's a good probability of that. What buprenorphine and methadone do is they normalize brain opioid function. It's a replacement for a deficiency. It's like getting a vitamin B12 shot once a month because you're deficient in vitamin B12. It's like taking vitamin D if you're deficient in vitamin D. It's like taking insulin if your pancreas is not producing enough. It's a replacement therapy. Now, we don't expect that someone who has diabetes is going to wean off their insulin. We don't expect that someone who's taking uh, hormone replacement for hypothyroidism is going to wean off of their replacement therapy. There's no reason that we should be expecting people who have opioid addiction to wean off of their meds because the brain is just another flesh and blood organ. It's just another organ, and it can get dysregulated like any organ can, and the persistent illusion is that somehow with the mind we can change these things. So what I tell my patients is, you you can no more will your brain to produce more opioids than you can will your pancreas to produce more insulin. It's just another organ. Hmm. Now, buprenorphine and methadone maintenance are both about equally effective on average. Now, some people respond better to one than the other, like with any treatment. 
but on average, they're about equally effective. They save lives. What they do is they make people feel normal. It's, it's, it's actually nearly miraculous to see when I have somebody, usually these days right now, it's a young person, uh, come in almost always with their parent. They're at odds. The kid or the young adult feels terrible, ashamed, angry, mystified. A parent is frustrated and angry and mystified. Why can't you just stop? How can you do these things? And one of the most demoralizing aspects of all addictions is that people routinely violate their most precious values while they're addicted. And at the time, it makes sense. That's what's so weird about it. And then when they, after they've stopped using and they look back four or six months later, they go, how in the world could I do that? How did I steal from my parents? How did I lie to everybody? You know, how did I do these things? I, I mean, I, but at the moment, at the time, it seemed to make sense. So that's so that's very demoralizing, and and then other people feel hurt and betrayed and take it personally when in fact it's a symptom of the disease. I wish I could take pictures of what the two of them look like when they first come to the clinic, and then after an evaluation, if it's indicated, I'll prescribe Suboxone, and I'll look at the young adult or adolescent, and I'll say, in a week you're going to come back and you're going to tell me you forgot what it was like to feel normal, and I look at the parent. And I say, in a week, you're going, to, you're going to come back and you're going to say, I've got my kid back. And that's exactly what happens every time. So a week later, the, 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 the person with the, the addiction comes in and says, well, I, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, I feel normal. I have energy. You know, in the last week, I cleaned up my room. I got a job and I applied for college. And, you know... <laughs> And I never thought about opioids, and that's disorienting because for the last seven years, that's the only thing I ever thought of. But when I'm on the medication, I don't even think about it. And the parent will say, I couldn't believe it. It's like my old, you know, Sally or whatever. She's just the great person I've always known, and she's jumping out of bed. She's helping out around the house. She did the dishes, you know, and it's just amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And the thing is, is that people are not high on this. They don't experience any high whatsoever. And there's no, there's no impairment of consciousness. There's no impairment of psychomotor movements for things like driving. People just feel normal. We're in the middle of our podcast about the treatment of opioid addiction, and I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority. This next section of this podcast is taken from my recent interview with Brian Johnson, MD, Director of Addiction Medicine at Upstate University Hospital, State University of New York. He has a different approach. Now, a number of psychological treatments have developed to treat the addict, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, but the last treatment one would expect to be useful is psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Now, with the integration of neuroscience and psychoanalytically oriented approaches, therapists have a new weapon to understand and deeply help addicts. We can finally begin to understand that one aspect of the personality of the addict does not always know what the other is doing, and we can understand why addicts would choose their drug dealer over their closest and dearest relatives and friends. But let's talk now about your treatment program. We do opioid-free treatment. 
of course, there are many drugs. Uh, cigarettes would be uh, an example, cocaine, alcohol, benzodiazepines that people get addicted to, and they're not opioids, but for opioids in particular, we, we do drug-free treatment. It's an innovation in the field. If you take exogenous hormone like heroin, you uh, reduce your receptor system, and then when you go off the hormone, you have a protracted withdrawal because you have a debilitated receptor system. So we give low-dose naltrexone. It's a pure blocker given in tiny quantities to push the receptor system back towards health. So we give a single dose of the opioid buprenorphine. We make detox easy. So you come in, suppose you've been injecting 10 bags of heroin a day. We have you stop the day before. Now you've got bare opioid receptors. We glue a large dose of buprenorphine on there, 32 milligrams usually. And now you leave the appointment feeling fine. And with a 37-hour half-life, the buprenorphine gradually dissociates from the opioid receptor. Uh, we use some minor adjunctive medicines, clonidine, hyoscyamine, trazodone, olanzapine to help with the anxiety, insomnia, and gut cramps of withdrawal, which are much attenuated by the single dose of buprenorphine. And our completion rate for outpatient opioid detox is 92%. Well, how can any talk therapy deal with something biological like cravings? Everyone gets a complex initial evaluation, both a good psychiatric evaluation, a physical exam. We do a number of uh, tests, such as the Hamilton rating scale for depression, the modified mini mental status to look for cognitive damage, a borderline screen, an ADHD screen. We end up with a faces pain scale. We end up with a, a set of numbers. We end up with a bunch of psychiatric and medical diagnoses. So that's visit one. After that, we use traditional free association. We say to the patient, talk to us. And all the medical students and psychiatry residents are taught what's called transference-focused psychotherapy. This is a development of Clarkson and Kernberg, who are psychoanalytic researchers. It's an evidence-based therapy. And then we throw in the neurobiological part as an addition. But we'll also make interpretations such as, gee, you came late. Tell me about that. And uh, what we'll see is when the person gets off the drug, the hostility of drug use goes into the relationship with the analytic therapist. By selling drugs to people, you create a cathexis. It's not just that they want the drug, they want you. So we hear this all the time. If, if you listen to people with addiction, they'll say things, as you saw in the article, like, I love my drug dealer. He's such a nice guy. He lets me shoot up in his bathroom. He lets me watch television with him. Well, the first step, obviously, is the detox. But then this love-hate relationship with the 
with the dealer, so that gets transferred to to the therapist. Well, is that what, what you're tends to happen is since using drugs is unconsciously hostile, when you stop being actively addicted, where does the hostility go? So often it goes into the relationship with the analyst. So instead of uh, doing something that's incredibly hostile towards yourself and the people around you, now you just hate your analyst and you go to hour after hour and tell your analyst what a bad person she or he is. And of course, if you're aware of this as the analyst, you're thinking, ah, oh, this is great. Uh, it's uh, it's like an emotional detox. The patient is able to detoxify their hostility by applying it to you. It just seems so counterintuitive to employ this with something that seems so biological as addiction. It's hard to connect that talking and that insight can change you, can change your brain can change how you think but then we're talking about the difference between the mind and the brain and i've always viewed addiction as something of the brain i just love elizabeth auken close so much so on page 254 of this beautiful book the psychoanalytic model of the mind she says a good clinician always uses many perspectives other than psychodynamic perspectives with each patient. Even the best psychodynamic clinician always uses a neurobiological understanding of mental illness. How does the hostility come into the relationship with you or the, with the therapeutic relationship? Well, so we were talking about an example this morning that uh, one of our common antidepressants is bupropion. And it's a good antidepressant because it hits a common triad of depression, ADHD, and cigarette addiction. It helps with all three. And one, one of the patients angrily accused me of making money from the bupropion drug company, and it's a generic drug, by so forcefully suggesting that he used that drug. And he was mad at me. How did you respond? Well, uh, with a transference interpretation. Yes, I understand that drug dealers have done that exact thing to you. And so what you're so helpfully trying to bring up by being angry at me is that, yes, people have really mistreated you by selling you drugs and they personally profit from it. So that's a transference interpretation. You take an intense feeling that comes from somewhere else and you transfer it onto some other entity. And if it's your therapist, you're doing it to work out those intense feelings you have. We're in the middle of our podcast about the treatment of opioid addiction, and I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority. This last section of this podcast is taken from my recent interview with Dr. Ishani Dalal, who describes her work at the Positive Sobriety Institute, which combines medication and talk therapy. So then I asked her, 
Dr. Dalal, what I'd like to discuss with you in this interview is the interface between medication-assisted treatment and psychosocial treatment. How does that work in your program at Positive Sobriety Institute? So basically the way that it works at our program is that we tend to use a lot of injectable naltrexone in our population because we deal with a lot of physicians and also a lot of other healthcare workers as well that may have been uh, using opioids or diverting medications from work. And basically what we have found is that injectable naltrexone, which is one of the uh, medication-assisted therapies that is offered, is very, very helpful, especially because they only have to take it, take the injection once a month. So they only have to be adherent once a month. The way that it overlaps kind of in our, in our program is that, you know, it, it, I think that psychosocial treatment is so important when someone is on medication-assisted treatment because if there's something that comes up and they don't show up for their injection, then, you know, we need to explore why that's happening and what the barriers are that are keeping them from getting their injection, things of that sort. And a lot of times those are, are very much psychosocial things. So whether it be something like transportation, family issues, depression, so that's not letting them have the motivation to get out of bed in the morning. It very much overlaps in that sense. That's one of three medications that are offered for opioid use is the injectable naltrexone, which is um, once a month. Okay, and the others are the methadone and uh, buprenorphine? Buprenorphine. Okay. Yeah. And you can also use oral naltrexone, but we tend to use injectable because a person only needs to take it once a month. And it it lasts? And it lasts. Well, that's great. For 28 days. In terms of the psychosocial interventions, have you found that there's one type of psychosocial intervention that you prefer or that's preferred in your program? When I um, when I look at psychosocial inter- intervention, I think especially in addiction, it's important to recognize like where the patient is in terms of you know stages of change. So a lot of times I tend to tailor it towards where they are, where they are with their addiction. So if they're, for example, if they're in the pre-contemplative, contemplative portion where they're they're not even thinking about it or they may be thinking about getting treatment, then I'm definitely going to implement more motivational interviewing in order to motivate them into getting treatment for their opioid use. If they're more in the preparation action or action stage, more like that, then definitely I think what's more helpful in those stages is something like 12-step facilitation or CBT relapse prevention. Now, just to note, CBT refers to cognitive behavioral treatment. And then the other psychosocial treatment that's also very helpful would be something like family therapy because so much of, because as we know, addiction is, is, is the disease that not only impacts the individual, but the entire family. So seeing where they are 
in their stages of change is very important because if you're trying to do CBT relapse with someone that's not even motivated to seek treatment, then that's not really going to help. So all those modalities are helpful depending on where they are. Now, of course, when someone's in treatment and say their motivation level for some reason you know, isn't there, then I may implement it at that point. So it's kind of just recognizing where the patient is, is what I tend to do. That's excellent. So they would be coming to you because maybe they're under pressure from their families or, I mean, if they're saying they don't have a problem with their addiction, then they would not have volunteered to come in unless they were ambivalent. Yes. And we we tend to see that quite, like quite often when in general, when you're dealing with addiction is that often the motivation may be external at first. You know, a lot of times you hear my spouse, you know, made me come and get help. You know, my children are pressuring me. My my workplace is on my back or, you know, so a lot of times the motivation is external and it's not something that's internally driven. And so it's almost taking that external motivation and you know, creating some internal drive is what is very important. They still be taking the injectable naltrexone? They would be taking it at that point in treatment. You know, usually they get well, they get a, they get time to have some sort of, to settle in treatment. And then we bring it up with them saying, you know, this is, this is a medication that is offered for opioid use disorder. And this can be used to help you maintain sobriety. And then the the main thing is, is that if they're on the injectable and then they use, they're not going to get that euphoria, that high. So, and that's what people are chasing is that euphoria and that high. So they're not going to get that. So if they know that, that that they're not going to get it, then that automatically lessens their motivation to use. That's definitely part of the treatment as well. It's both together. That's very important. Just staying with the injectable medication, is that something that stops at a certain point? Or is it a lifetime thing? The injectable, and I think, you know, the way to look at the injectable is that stopping, stopping any kind of medication-assisted treatment is, is one of those situations that is extremely individualized. It is very important to see where the patient is at in terms of their addiction and recovery. If they've had a good go of, you know, maintaining sobriety, giving positive uh, or drug-free urines and engaging in treatment, whether it be group therapy, CBT relapse, you know, uh, family therapy, individual therapy, whatever it may be, and they're doing well, maybe after six months, six months, they may, they may themselves say, I'm ready to kind of try and see if I can handle um, maintaining sobriety without medication-assisted treatment. And if they, if they have all those things in place, then it, it may be worth it, but, but really there is no exact timeline. And it's really a conversation that a provider has with each patient. The other aspect of it is having the conversation with the patient, but also having conversations with the rest of the team. It may be even getting collateral information from family and seeing what the family thinks. There is no 
tried and true way of going about stopping the medication. That was Dr. Ishani Dalal, and I'm Barbara Alexander. I hope you'll join me next week when our three speakers will look at the subject of relapse. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.